Alert Medic 1 responds. Box area 19 dash. You're listening to the Alert Medic One podcast, the premier emergency medical services podcast with your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq and Ken Sanner. Okay. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Alert Medic One podcast. It's your two hosts. It's Ken. Hey, it's Moose. And we are here with two awesome guests we're very excited to have, Dr. Anders and uh, Kyle Fratta. They are both very much involved in pediatrics uh, and some really cool programs going on here in the state of Maryland. So I'm going to let them introduce themselves very quickly. Uh, Dr. Thanks, guys. Yeah, uh, I am Jennifer Anders. I am a pediatric emergency medicine physician at the Johns Hopkins University. And in my spare time, I work for the state of Maryland as the Associate State uh, Medical Director for Pediatrics at MIMS, the state uh, EMS agency. And I am uh, very excited about all things pediatrics and want to talk to you guys about uh, a range of, uh, of things that have to do with EMS for children. And uh, importantly, Kyle and I are very excited to share with you a project that we have developed um, called the PD tree or the pediatric decision tree. I'm Kyle Fratta. I'm a third year medical student at uh, Campbell University. Before that, I was a paramedic in Baltimore County for about six years. And I worked with Dr. Anders at Hopkins on the PD tree project. Great. So it is awesome to have you both with us here today. And we're going to kind of take the show in two directions today. The first part, we're going to just talk about pediatric calls in general, how we should respond to those, uh, you know, when should we stay in play versus load and go. And the second part, we're going to talk about that project Dr. Anders mentioned, uh, that PD tree project. Now, uh, as you all know, I don't, we, well, I don't disclose where I work, but what I will say is I had the opportunity when I was assigned to the training academy at my uh, career department to have Dr. Anders and Kyle come in a couple times and talk about the pediatric decision tree. And it is an absolutely cool project. So I can't wait to get into that. You know, my first thought with it was, I can't believe no one's done this before. Like this is, this is great. So we'll, we'll get into the nitty gritty with that here in a little bit. Um, but the first thing I wanted to talk about are pediatric calls in general. When we think about those as paramedics, as EMTs, Pediatric incidents are one of the most stress and anxiety inducing incidents that we can have. You know, we, we get the jazz hands, we get shaky, our heart rates go up. Why is that? So I'm going to throw that to uh, Dr. Anders and Kyle. What do you, what do you guys think? So personally, I, I definitely agree with you uh, as a paramedic that we're definitely the most anxiety inducing calls for me. And um, I can't think it's two part. It's definitely a lack of training at baseline coming out of paramedic school and uh, continuing ed. But also personally, uh, from my experience, it's just a lack of seeing a lot of pediatric volume. And um, when we do see it, they're usually not that sick. So getting yeah. taken care of a very sick kid is one in a thousand calls or so. Yeah, I think that's certainly true. And uh, you don't have to talk to very many EMTs or paramedics to hear that, uh, hear that story told. Uh, and I think the data certainly bears it out. Obviously, EMT training is a, a limited number of contact hours, and 
pediatrics is a relatively small uh, slice of the job, so there just aren't that many hours devoted to training. And even in a longer paramedic training program, uh, it's, just a, it's just a small number of, uh, of contact hours. Do you think there's... I, oh, I'm yeah. sorry. I was going to say, do you think there's a, a perception that, particularly in these critical pediatric calls, that these calls are more high stakes? Like if I have a pediatric and respiratory extremis versus a 50-year-old respiratory extremis, it may not, you know, the 50-year-old may not elevate that heart rate and get everybody nervous, but the pediatric patient who looks like, you know, they're pre-code because they're having this horrible asthma attack, uh, that seems to evoke a whole nother response. I think that's definitely true. And some of it, again, goes back to just lack of exposure. You've, you've run that call uh, so many times on the, on the 50-year-old, and the number of codes you've run on 50-year-olds is um, so much higher than the number of codes you've run on five-month-olds that just that worry about what's the worst thing that could happen, mm -hmm. uh, it's a lot more stress-inducing with the, with the small one than with the middle-aged guy. Um, where you've got past experience to, to fall back on. Across the country, only about 7% of all EMS transports are children. And by children, we mean kids less than 18 years old. Um, less wow. than half of those transports are young children. So what we would think of as real pediatrics, the single digit ages. And then a tiny fraction of that three to 4% of calls that are small children, a tiny fraction of those are seriously uh, acutely ill. So the, the numbers are small. And for any given EMS clinician, the frequency of exposure is going to be low. And it's really hard to train uh, and feel prepared for rare events. Yeah, I think that's, that's uh, very spot on and some really interesting statistics. How can the EMS clinician increase their comfort level with kids, especially sick kids? What's the best thing we can do? If we're not getting that hands-on education in our initial training programs, where should we turn? So I'm actually gonna back up uh, one step. I think the, one of the really useful things to do is to get more familiar with healthy kids. So speaking back to that first question about why is this so stress-inducing, EMS clinicians, especially uh, younger, uh, folks um, tend to be male and young. And if you don't have kids at home, if you're not a parent yet, or if you haven't been put in the situation of doing a lot of childcare uh, for young siblings, it can be really difficult to know what's a normal five-year-old like? What is a two-year-old supposed to do when they stub their toe? And the communication barriers and the stress of just having a healthy crying child uh, in the back of the ambulance with you is gonna raise your blood pressure. So having whatever exposure uh, you can get to, um, to kids is helpful. The uh, other things though you can do to get more exposure to sick kids would be uh, to put yourself in situations where you can, um, can, can be with them and I think wherever there may be uh, opportunities for uh, continuing education, uh, whether that is didactic training or simulation-based training or, uh, uh, or uh, actually getting uh, more clinical exposure either in pediatric emergency departments uh, or in the 
I, I understand they're not as frequent as they, I wish they would be, but opportunities to go into a pediatric anesthesia uh, suite and do um, airway management uh, in children, wherever we can get more exposures and opportunities for uh, ALS providers, especially, I think um, we can increase that confidence and increase that skill set. That kind of brings up an interesting point, and it's kind of tangentially related to what we're talking about. It, it would be nice if we had more content opportunities that were like clinical hours, especially for stuff with kids where instead of saying, okay, I'm going to go take this eight-hour class on pediatric emergencies, what I'm actually going to do is spend an eight-hour rotation at you know a, a level one pediatric trauma center or a um, you know, comprehensive pediatric center or, or, you know, something like that. And that's not, you know, something that's really something we can accomplish here today, but it is a good thought, I think. Yeah. So I, th and that's what I was going to comment on. Like, so 100% full disclosure, uh, when I, even now that we're talking about it, there's like a little level of anxiety that, uh, you know, I, it just automatically comes up. Right. Um, so kids, when, when we're dispatched for the cardiac arrest and I can, and as we're talking right now, I'm thinking of calls that I've been on where I react completely differently when it's a 73 year old arrest versus a 33 year old arrest versus a three year old arrest. Right. And it's just that, that stress has created like a sensation loop in my head. Um, and the only way I can think about breaking that is additional training, right? And and throughout the podcast, you know, a bunch of episodes that we've recorded, a repeated uh, a repeated theme keeps coming back, which is more education, uh, right? Um, and I, I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent here, but we're functioning as independent providers in the field. Our equivalents have a ton more training in the hospital, right? At a minimum, their master's degrees as, you know, um, uh, you know physician's assistant or NPs. And, but we're arriving on scene and we are, you know, we have these acute kids that are really sick. Um, of course, we're going to be, uh, you know, apprehensive of that situation because we don't understand what the patient is, right? Like we run the 50 year old COPD or every shift, right? Or every trick. Um, I can probably count on, you know, actually, no, I can't, uh, but it's a small amount of patients that. I've truly seen that are really, really sick. And uh, it, it, I think it just comes back to back to additional training. And uh, yeah, you're right. I don't think we're going to fix. I don't the Rome wasn't fixed in the day, but I think uh, that's uh, I think that's how we need to fix it. Yeah. As much as I would love to see real robust opportunities for um, clinical shadowing and, and, and clinical time uh, for all uh, EMS clinicians, even in the pediatric emergency department and at a very high acuity pediatric emergency department like I work in, uh, it may be once every three to four shifts that I even see a really sick kid. So I'm, I don't know that that's going to be a great way to ensure that we efficiently get the education that we, that we need to deliver to the EMS clinicians. Uh, because I'd hate to have somebody come and spend eight hours with me. And uh, the worst thing we see is, you know, one kid with a moderate case of croup. You just described uh, my whole pediatric clinical experience. We didn't see, <laughs> I, I didn't see, I don't think I saw one sick kid at Upper Chesapeake. Um, I, I was all the, all the sick kids I saw were when I was riding in Baltimore city. And kind of on, on the lines of what Moose was just saying, or actually what you said, Dr. Anders, um, you know, even if, though, we did a shift and the sickest kid we got was a, a moderate croup, that's still 
a higher severity of pediatric patient than most of us will see in a month, you know? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think there's, I think there's things to learn there. Sorry. And I really enjoy when we have, um, have paramedic students come and spend some clinical time with us in the pediatric ED at Hopkins, uh, even just getting vital signs or getting exposure to kids that are moderately ill, you can you can see the the benefit and and how much it is adding to the way they are thinking about approaching and assessing uh, sick children. So, not to not to uh, downplay uh, the importance of that, but I, signing up to to spend a shift with me and expecting that you're going to see um, even one uh, critically ill child or code uh, is a real crapshoot. So. The, the way that I think we can make sure that, that our EMS clinicians get exposure to those sorts of things would be in simulation uh, when we can plan ahead and schedule to have a um, moderate fidelity or high fidelity situation happen. Um, we have uh, a variety of organized programs that are already doing that, in particular um, the Pediatric Education for Pre-Hospital Professionals or the PEP course that the AAP and um, ASEP uh, jointly endorse um, is pretty well distributed around the country um, in almost every state. Uh, I don't know how many um, uh, hundreds of courses are run each year, but it's it's some number in the hundreds. Um, and we run them in Maryland uh, on, uh, on a semi-regular basis. I think those sorts of courses where you can get exposure to case-based uh, scenarios and simulation training on the pediatric high acuity skills are really helpful. Uh, the other major program that is rolling out across the country, part of the EMS for Children federal program, uh, is a state partnership in every U.S. state and territory. And one of their key performance measures that they've been tracking for the last three or four years is the establishment of what they call a pediatric emergency care coordinator uh, in each EMS operational program. So in Maryland, uh, we call our, our PECs uh, pediatric champions, and they are point people to provide local educational opportunities because in order to get this education out to the large number of EMS clinicians, we've got 20,000 uh, EMTs and, and paramedics across the state of Maryland. I'm sorry, EMTs, CRTs, and paramedics across the state of Maryland. Uh, we need to bring those drills into every station uh, and have them available um, where the clinicians are, not, not expect that everybody's going to cycle through a classroom or a clinical shadowing opportunity. We've got to take the education to the um, to the, to the EMS clinicians. Cool. All right. So, uh, kind of moving on from there, we, we've talked about some of the anxiety that, you know, these high priority calls cause us, um, which leads, I think a lot of the time to load and go, even when that's not mm -hmm. appropriate. So what I'd kind of like you to break down for us is when should we absolutely load and go? And when should we actually stay in play and try to fix the problem or at least stabilize the patient a little more? So when I was thinking um, when you the load and go versus stay and play, uh, I think personally uh, a pretty large group of the children we take care of can be at least in some way addressed uh, on scene. And uh, looking through some of the past literature, 
especially between all kids and especially kids in arrest, um, really taking care of the kid at the site has been more beneficial in, um, in cardiac arrest and getting ROSC and getting good neurologic outcomes. And um, when you think about the number of calls we get, the, the highest uh, probability is going to be a kid with a seizure or asthmatic, um, possibly some type of airway obstruction. And these are all things that we are capable and within our scope of practice to take care of at the scene. Yeah, so that's what I mean, and I and we kind of talked about it before we start recording. But uh, you know, I think this is a discussion right now, right, at the state level, of what is you know is there a set amount of time, and how do we break that uh, that reflex that many people have to uh, just load the kid up? Um, I, I think it's a proven fact that we cannot do adequate interventions in a moving ambulance, right? Like whether it's compressions, whether it's you know starting an IV, any any like. ALS, higher level ALS goal, you're not going to be able to efficiently do um, and safely do, right? Um, and right. we, I, I think, again, I think back to calls that I've had where um, it's been, I've shown up and there's, you know, people there already, the, the stress of the scene is already up and you have people that are carrying a kid to you that is in full cardiac arrest, right? And um, because of the culture, because of the quote unquote accepted practice right now, you question, like I questioned myself of, Hey, should I be moving right now? Right. But no, I mean, the appropriate care is if you, sh uh, all the literature shows, and I think practice has kind of moved that if you have an, an adult in cardiac arrest, you are staying and giving them high quality CPR until you get either ROSC or you, a, you hit a particular point. And, um, Please don't shoot me, Dr. Anders, but the physiology <laughs> at this point doesn't change, right? A heart is a heart. Perfusion is perfusion, right? Like compressions are compressions. Yes, I'm sure at very detailed things there are changes. Uh, but um, what I'm getting at is the you should be showing up and starting compressions on these kids, yeah. right? I, I, if there's one answer to your question, uh, when should we not load and go? It is absolutely the child in cardiac arrest. A child in cardiac arrest needs their airway opened uh, and some ventilation, mainly by that I mean bag valve mask ventilation and chest compressions. And they also need rapid access to epinephrine. So in my perfect world, every child in cardiac arrest is going to get an ALS response in fairly short order, have high quality CPR with uh, ventilation, chest compression, get a first dose of epinephrine uh, before the question of loading up uh, even uh, occurs to anyone. And, and there really is research coming out to support that. And there has been for a couple of years now, correct? Like this is uh, something that is, is kind of documented that this is the best way to go with most of these calls. There's really strong uh, research on that. There have been a couple of really important studies come out in the last couple of years about uh, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and EMS care uh, in um, children. So the first one uh, was published last year and has really strong evidence that early epinephrine matters. So that was uh, published in circulation um, in 2018. Uh, Hansen was the lead article or lead author on that. And uh, they found that early epinephrine, by which they defined as less than 10 minutes after arrest, uh, was a strong predictor of better uh, survival for both adults and children. 
when they broke down their subgroup into uh, the two different age groups uh, for pediatric patients, every one minute delay in getting epinephrine reduced the odds of survival about 9%. Wow, that's pretty impressive. I'd like to I'd like to dive into the physiology of that a little bit, Doc, if you don't mind. So we we understand that with adults, we you know we hold off on the that epinephrine because generally you know a a VFib or VTAC arrest is you know we need the compressions and we need the defibrillation, but the the incidence of VTAC VFib arrest in pediatrics is way less, correct? Uh, the, yeah, and generally, uh, if we do see it, it's probably a congenital heart defect or something like that, correct? Um, I guess an outlier would be maybe a lacrosse goalie or something who got hit in the chest, right? Komodo cortis. Yeah, uh, and, but apart from that, you're not going to see it. Um, and to further on that point, uh, these arrests are, and I, I don't know if this is true, but I've always been taught that generally pediatric cardiac, and Ken taught me, by the way, he was my paramedic instructor, <laughs> so if this is wrong, it's his fault. Um, if uh, a kid is in arrest, generally it, 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 you should be aggressively looking at the airway to see if it's an airway issue is that is that correct yes okay. so for children most of the time cardiac arrest is an end process that started with respiratory compromise and hypoxia okay. uh, as opposed to adults who are having primary cardiac events uh, ischemia uh, for the most part and um, in kids once they arrest we pediatric uh, the algorithm has still um, gone to the CAB uh, and compressions first, but the airway is not far behind. So where we have the option for hands-only CPR in adults, uh, the AHA does not endorse any um, compression-only CPR for pediatrics. So do you think that the, uh, again, like kind of diving into the physiology, obviously, you know, epinephrine is the catecholamine that's working, you know, to increase cardiac activity, right? But in pediatrics specifically, do you think it's beta-2 activity because of a respiratory etiology has anything to do with, uh, you know, in- increased effects in kids? Or is it like, I guess we no. don't need to have it. No? Okay. No. Okay. Uh, it's an interesting question, and there may be something there, but uh, you see ROSC, um within a matter of a minute or two. And when we use epi for kids in severe respiratory distress that are sort of peri-respiratory uh, arrest, mm-hmm. uh, those asthmatics that are going down the tubes, um, it just doesn't improve their respiratory status that fast. It's, it's okay. reasonably fast, but it's not, uh, it's not instantaneous. Um, the, the charge that epi gives to the heart um, seems to be an independent Thing. Cool. Thanks. Yeah, do you have anything else you want to talk about with uh, before we jump into the PD tree? Uh, no, no, I'm good. I uh, so fair warning. It, it, this is really going to take you guys off. I think I didn't even know PD tree existed until Ken <gasps> asked me if I wanted to do an episode on it, and I I consider myself a well versed, <laughs> educated paramedic, and I guess I just never worked in a jurisdiction that used it. Like I, I didn't even know it existed until Ken was like, "Hey, you want to do an episode on pediatrics?" I'm like, "Yeah, sure. What is it? <laughs> what the heck is that?" <laughs> yeah. So you know, I, I would Fair throw enough. it to the two of you, basically like this. Uh, we have a, a listening audience around the country, um, so it's not necessarily just Maryland and the world and the world. Yes, and the world. I can show you the stats. I would like to see that. Um, so. How would you explain the PD tree, the pediatric decision tree, to the EMS clinician who is unfamiliar with Maryland EMS? Absolutely. 
So the concept here is that uh, transport destination matters. Uh, I'll back up uh, a little bit and um, just give you a couple more statistics. Uh, EMS provides some sort of treatment or procedure to about 25% of pediatric transports. So that includes giving oxygen, doing an albuterol treatment, any kind of IV start fluids medications, about 25% of the time. We've looked at um, Maryland specifically, and then uh, similar um, studies in other states show approximately the same um, kind of rate. About 40% of the time, EMS transport bypasses the closest hospital and chooses another facility of a um, perceived higher capability level for a pediatric patient. So that means about twice as often as you give any kind of drug or oxygen to a kid, EMS is making a transport decision that does have impact on their care. And it matters where they end up. Because if you go to a local hospital, you go to the closest hospital to the scene, and they're not able to take care of the child, they arrive, they get registered, they get that little wristband put on, uh, they take a history, the nurses do their triage, it takes about 25 minutes, it seems these days. And somebody comes in, finally says, oh heck, we don't have the kind of um, surgeon that will operate on this kid's broken arm. We're gonna need to call another hospital and transfer him over there. So they make phone calls, uh, the commercial ambulance is arranged that's gonna transport the kid from hospital one to hospital two. The whole process in a best case scenario is probably gonna add two hours to, uh, to the day for that family. That is a lot of time and stress where the kid isn't getting the care that they need. So wouldn't it be better if EMS had the transparent um, understanding of what is the capability at the various destination facilities that are feasible um, for them to get to. Not that anybody should be driving across the country with a kid, but if you could go five miles further to get a kid to a place that can give them definitive care, wouldn't you rather do that as, uh, as an EMS clinician? Absolutely. And so we started from that point of view. Absolutely. I, th I think that's an awesome concept. And this actually goes into something I want to talk with you about one day, Moose, is how important it is for a paramedic or an EMT uh, to understand what definitive care is yes. for specific issues. That way we make these more educated choices. But in the, in the lack of that um, ability or knowledge for some people, I think having something like an algorithm or a decision tree where you can work down and say, okay, this, this patient meets category X, we need to go to the comprehensive or the specialty center. I think that is just, it's, it's just, it boggled my mind. Like I said at the beginning of this, such a great idea. How did no one think of this before? Which kind of brings me to my next question. Is there anything else like this out there? Or is this like really a novel idea that you guys had? So, it's not exactly a novel idea. It's been going on in EMS for a while, um, especially when you look at stroke centers and STEMI uh, centers. There's yeah, even say, people yeah. who do direct transport protocols for geriatric patients and psych uh, psychiatric patients. It's just never been extrapolated to uh, pediatric patients. 
Outside right, and that's what I meant in, in in regards to peds. You know, it's like we've always had this for trauma, and you know, we have other specialty centers, but um, I guess not always had it for trauma. But um, <laughs> you know, over the past you know ten fifteen years, it's been been around. Just you know, the idea of having something like this for peds, it's just such a great idea. You know, I mean, it it it, it if, to me, it's it. I'm newer to the game of VMS, but uh. Just makes sense, yeah. right? We if you have a STEMI patient, you're not going to take it to the non-STEMI capable uh, hospital, right? So right. I mean, it it's it, and it's really cool that uh, a system like this exists. Yep. If only I worked in yeah. a place that used it. <laughs> I think part of the delay is that with a STEMI patient, uh, those patients are pretty likely to have serious outcomes, either death or long ICU stays. Uh, similarly, with stroke patients and with um, high mechanism trauma patients. And so it's not uh, difficult from a research perspective to prove that this algorithm for direct transport saves people's lives or it makes um, significant difference in the neurologic status of stroke patients leaving the hospital if you can get them to their definitive care uh, faster. Kids, fortunately, uh, are pretty robust and even very sick kids uh, are able to make uh, make uh, really good comebacks. And so it takes um, a very uh, massive sample size to prove that such a transport protocol would make a difference for pediatric mortality. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, and so part of the Part of the issue um, why this hadn't been hadn't been um, attempted, I believe, uh, before, is that it was considered to be low stakes. Uh, so, if you take a kid to the to the closest hospital and it needs to have interfacility transport, eh, what's a couple of hours? It's no big deal. He's got a broken femur. He can sit at that hospital. He's not going to die of his broken femur, and they can do an interfacility transport. But when we tackled this project, uh, I think the compelling argument that we were able to make is that it does matter. It's not just about whether people die or not. Uh, it's about how much stress and strain you've caused them. It's about how much you're costing the medical system by this um, by this trip to an emergency department and all of the resources that went into that local emergency department visit that didn't actually accomplish the goal of taking care of the kid's broken femur. So that was time and energy that all of the staff at the first hospital put in. It was time and energy that the family uh, invested in that visit. And then you just have to pack up and do it all over again. And, uh, and that's a harm. We also know uh, from looking at the data that kids are less likely to get pain medication if they're taken to hospitals that are um, not really comfortable dealing with them. So kids with um, serious orthopedic injuries that go to kind of local hospitals and then get transferred to a definitive care site get less pain meds than kids that go straight to a site that is comfortable and capable of taking care of their injury. We know that um, kids get duplicate x-rays, they get duplicate lab draws. Those things hurt. Radiation has some cumulative negative effect. It's not life or death, 
but it's real and it's measurable. And if we can prevent those harms by giving EMS the tools to know with this kind of condition, hospital B is a better choice than hospital C, why wouldn't you give EMS that knowledge and, and a tool to do that? Absolutely. And, you know, in that same vein, yeah, on kind of like the human side of it, there's a financial and an emotional impact for the family as well. You know, when you're going, Absolutely. going, watching your child suffer and wait at one hospital that can't do anything, then the private ambulance comes and takes you away. And yeah, it's a, it's a whole thing. So yeah, I, I definitely think that that's some really great points that you make there. Um, so what's what's the outcomes like? What uh, has there been any like uh, quantitative research that you all have conducted after launching this? Or how, how how's it going? I cannot tell you that yet. We are still in our um, pilot year. So we launched the PD tree in 2018, uh, but because of some that. issues of Maryland changing over our um, electronic medical record that's used by EMS, uh, we didn't get. Uh, universal data collection until the end of 2018. So we are in the tail end of our 12-month uh, pilot phase. And at the end of, of this calendar year, um, we will have an opportunity to crack open the data and see if those uh, bypass and transport patterns have changed and really look at what the impact has been on kids. Okay. Um, and uh, another PD tree question for you. Yeah. Could you kind of break down the categories of or levels of facilities available uh, for the EMS and we clinician? Can, we can put up a we'll, I'll put a screenshot of the protocol too when we do, uh, publish the podcast. Oh, that sounds so. terrific. Kyle, okay. do you want to take this one? Sure. So we have um, broken down hospital availabilities from specialty and trauma centers as one group. Um, comprehensive centers is another regional. And um, we also have on the tree, the closest facility for certain, uh, certain issues that need to just go directly to the closest facility. Okay. Um, so actually, Jen, could you take this over? I don't have the notes for the specifics. Oh, nice. Sure. So the way we, the way we defined hospital types was uh hospitals that are designated uh, trauma centers, designated specialty care centers, like burn centers. And in Maryland, we've got hand centers and eye centers. We've got all kinds of centers. So centers uh, there centers. are certainly um, patients that are um, best served at those, at those trauma and specialty centers. The um, sort of universal categories that we also uh, laid out were uh, comprehensive uh, pediatric centers, uh, which we defined as places that had pediatric ICU capability, regional pediatric centers, which are defined as those that have pediatric inpatient units, or they have a 24-7 board-certified pediatric um, folks in their emergency department, and then uh, local pediatric um, receiving facilities. Okay. Very good. Thank you. Um... We're kind of looking at your protocol right now, just going through it. And, uh, you know, one thing that strikes me is that it's actually spelled out 
under these levels of care, what sorts of patients need to go to what kind of pa- or what kind of facility? So, you know, you have for the closest ED, you have stuff like cardiac arrest, you know, can't establish an airway, stuff like that. Specialty center, you have the stuff you mentioned, you know, cardiac arrest with ROSC, eye injuries, hand injuries, burns, trauma centers, trauma category patients. Um, one thing uh, that I, I may have missed, if, did you mention the patient's medical home uh, facility? I did not, but we did. That was felt to be really important to include that if a patient has a chronic condition, that they need specialty care for that condition uh, to get them to their medical home. Obviously, there are kids that have epilepsy and they've got a neurologist at the big hospital in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. But if what they have is a, a laceration on their knee, you don't have to drive them all the way to Baltimore for that. Right. But if they're having status epilepticus, um, maybe they do need to go to where their neurologist is. Right. So um, it does direct a kid having an emergency related to a chronic condition um, at a specialty center that they go back to where their specialist lives. Cool. And I, I'm not going to read the uh, the whole yeah. thing, but just to get we'll, the... We'll post the... We'll probably do yeah. a screenshot of this and we can post it. Is that yeah. allowed? I don't know if that's allowed. I don't, I don't know. Do it. Well, for, it's public. For, for the listener, comprehensive care, stuff like DKA, altered mental status under two with no seizure disorder, um, joint injury with deformity, long bone deformity, um, and regional is stuff like Alti or Brewy. Um, seizure, requiring medication administration, stuff like that. Um, so like I said, I don't want to go through the whole thing, um, but it's it's pretty well thought out and spelled out. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's very easy uh, for a, a paramedic or an EMT to look at this and say, okay, I, I, I see where my patient falls on this. And, and I mean, can... when I look at this, this is what I want to look at at two in the morning with a really sick kid, mm-hmm. right? It's my ninth, you know, ninth call of, the, of my 24-hour shift or 12-hour shift and or 14, I guess. And uh, I need a something, a protocol that is literally this. And uh, it, it's really it's really good to see. I do have a few questions. Um, and just anecdotally, some of the experiences that I've had as a paramedic where, uh, especially where I used to work, um, the... I, and it kind of ties into what you said previously, Dr. Anders, of the the tax that it puts on the system, but uh, which some people use as an excuse not to transport the definitive care. But when you take into perspective the larger effect it has on the medical system, and I can uh, explain that a bit. So uh, example A, you have a seven-year-old who has a history of, uh, you know, uh, you know, epilepsy, right? And they're seen at Hopkins downtown in Baltimore, but you are two hours away. A, I can see a, a system, an EMS system telling that person, no, take that kid, uh, you know, they're stable, take them to the local hospital. Um, because you, there's not a lot of ambulances here and you, we can't take you out of service. But on the larger scale of things, now the definitive care, you know, that kid shows up to the hospital and he goes into status, right? Um, the, the, the larger load, right, that it puts on the EMS system, not only the EMS system, excuse me, the healthcare system as a whole, when we're looking into the, the local, you know, the, the community hospital that may not be able to provide the best care, that transfer process and uh, the then, you know, the repeat of things that like you mentioned, um, I think uh, EMS leaders that are listening to this podcast should really take that into effect because honestly, it didn't occur to me until you said it. Right. Um, Because I think uh, in EMS, we kind of seem to operate in our own silo and don't really 
uh, consider the rest of medicine. Mm -hmm. Um, but when you consider something like this, you truly are doing harm to your patient if you're not taking them to the appropriate, uh, you know, uh, center. And, uh, that's what, I mean, that I'm like fascinated by this. I think every jurisdiction should be using this. Yeah. Yeah. So when we designed the, the PD tree, the, one of the major points was to try and balance that balance, what is best for the patient and what is best for the EMS system and, and the hospital system uh, in a larger picture. So in the PD tree, there are certain stipulations, which um, in the current model are left pretty vague so that uh, this PD tree can be generalized out. Cause you know, in Baltimore, the transport time between a comprehensive facility and your local facility might be five to 10 minutes. But if you go out into a rural setting, it might be much, much higher than that. Uh, take a lot longer to get to those specialty centers. So we're trying to not trying to eliminate interfacility transport or uh, commercial transport. We're just trying to balance what's best for the patient. And in developing that PD tree, we tried to, uh, we searched the evidence, tried to make it as evidence-based model as we can to find exactly who's going to benefit from going to that comprehensive facility. You know, not maybe not everyone who's, you know, like a little bit back and forth, should this kid go to a comprehensive, should they go to a, a close facility needs to go, but the kids who need to go, uh, we're trying to siphon out who's going to benefit from going. And to kind of speak to how comprehensive you guys were in, in creating the pilot program for this, you actually set this up that it's being trialed not only in an urban jurisdiction, but also a suburban and a rural jurisdiction. So you can really see the effect on the different communities across the state. Right. We thought that was really important to look at what the impact is uh, across these different types of geographic um, regions. And so we have a large urban jurisdiction. Uh, we have a very large suburban jurisdiction uh, that has much longer transport times and transport distances. And then we have a very rural jurisdiction yeah. uh, that has a total of about 200 pediatric transports <laughs> for the whole year. Yeah. Um, but uh, um, from those three locations, the, uh, the, the scene, the resources are very, very different. But when we looked at how they were using um, pediatric bypass in our pre-pilot test phase, so before the PD tree existed, um, across those three um, jurisdictions, uh, about 50% um, of kids in our rural county and 50% of kids in our suburban county were bypassing the closest facility. And in uh, our urban jurisdiction, um, uh, it, there was a much lower rate of, um, of bypass, mainly because in our urban jurisdiction, it, we have the pediatric specialty centers really concentrated. They exist in in the city. They don't exist out in the country. Yeah. Right. I always say that um, Maryland has five regions that are five different states. <laughs> you know, like yeah. you, you can drive an hour and you, you're in a completely different part. Like, I mean, area. It's, yeah. it's, it is one and of the so two. Sorry. I want to I want to reinforce that um, you've raised some really good points. Number one, that. I know that jurisdictional officers are going to um, get palpitations uh, with any kind of protocol change that suggests we want to use more resources. But uh, in the current system, before a PD tree exists, before there is any kind of evidence-based guidance for where to take your pediatric patient, 
we're asking uh, our EMS clinicians to make those decisions and, and make that judgment in the back of an ambulance. And I think by and large, they have great judgment, but we're asking them to go in blind and make their best guess. Mm -hmm. And um, so right now across the state of Maryland, about 40% of um, the time, our EMS clinicians are deciding to bypass the closest hospital. And across these three jurisdictions that we currently have our pilot tests going on, um, it accounted over a one-year period of a thousand extra hours of EMS time mm. for the bypasses that they are doing wow. without any kind of protocol um, to guide it, just using gut instinct. Mm. Well, and I don't know whether that number is high or low, should be higher, should be lower. That's our benchmark for what the world looks like before the PD tree was put into existence. Um, but I do know that's a significant amount of time and resource use to be doing without any kind of oversight or guidance um, yeah. for it. Yeah, and I mean, I, I, th I think we've also stressed on the podcast the idea that we need to make the system robust and, and fix latent issues of the system like that and have medical physician led guidance whenever possible right and evidence-based guidance uh so it's awesome to hear that honestly it's great to hear the process that you all went through i think it's, yeah it's, i think i think there's two strength two two significant strengths of um the pd tree the pediatric decision tree the first is that it's evidence-based we looked at all the published literature uh, about what conditions are most likely to need secondary transport, so to need an interfacility transport after EMS has delivered them to a first hospital, and what conditions is there a medical impact where we can show that kids have longer ICU stays or where there is an increase in morbidity mortality. And so we chose those conditions to populate the PD tree. We didn't just pick pick things that you know I decided were a good <laughs> idea. We we went from from where there was evidence to show that that this destination decision has an, a real impact, a measurable impact on the patient. And then we assigned them to the different levels and we went through every um, hospital across the state of Maryland and assigned those hospitals to those levels and put in our tool for the Maryland clinicians that are using this, what hospitals in your neck of the woods meet this level of capability, that level of capability. Because you don't know, just because a hospital has a billboard by the highway that's got a teddy bear on it and says, we love kids here at, at local town hospital, or because you roll in and they've got Mickey Mouse stickers on the wall, that doesn't necessarily translate to them having pediatric anesthesia services that are gonna take a kid to the operating room. And so, um, we were asking our EMS clinicians to make these judgments based on uh, completely um, unsupported evidence. It's, it's basically how nice the uh, triage nurses were when you rolled in. If they, uh, if they scowled at you and you brought a, a pin in, uh, you're like, well, I'm not going there again. We won't get into uh, that. <laughs> hey, the pediatric <laughs> nurses are usually pretty nice. Or if, um, or, or if it looked child-friendly. Uh, and so what we want to do is bring transparency, like uh, the, the EMS clinicians should know this hospital is a stroke hospital. You can bring your stroke patient here mm -hmm. and they should know this hospital 
has the facilities to take care of kids through the spectrum of care, not just stabilize them in the ED, because every ED across the state of Maryland is totally capable of stabilizing a kid. But um, are they going to be capable of admitting them when they need to be admitted or doing the procedure that they need to fix their their broken bone? Mm-hmm. And and I want to put that information into the hands of our of our Maryland uh, EMTs and uh, and ALS providers. Okay, cool. Moose, do you have uh, anything else? So I have talking? a few okay. uh, pediatric related questions that have always just been burning. They have nothing to do with PD tree. <laughs> All right, um, shoot. If uh, if you if yeah if they're random, then don't worry about it. I'll just edit this part out. Um, so number one for me is uh, pediatric pain assessment when uh, they can't talk to me. Right. And I, I feel like kids are just crying all the time. I don't have kids. I, I, uh, I have a nephew who I like hang out with for an hour and then I give him back. Uh, so like, how do, how do you, how do, could you have any pearls for like the average EMS clinician? Who's like, you have a crying kid, but you don't know how much pain they're in. You know, how, what are some tools to do that? Oh, wow. That is a, uh, that is an excellent question. Um, that was my, uh, my actual first, uh, first area of research inquiry when back when I was a pediatric uh, ER fellow um, back in Chicago. Um, there are not great tools for the child who isn't able to communicate verbally. Basically, uh, we have two options. One is to make your best guess, uh, and the other is a um, scientifically validated tool called the FLAC scale. It stands for face, legs, arms, crying, and consolability. And it's like an APGAR score. So you get zero, one, or two points at each of these five different, um, different areas. And then you add it all up uh, and you get a score between one and 10. You need algebra and a calculator to figure this thing oh, out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it never struck me as being um, something that was useful for emergency department use, let alone uh, for EMS to use. So my best answer is if the child has uh, an obvious traumatic uh, injury, if they have a burn and they are crying, give them some pain medicine. You are not going to harm a child with one dose of a narcotic uh, if it turns out to just be a sprain, uh, but they were screaming and crying, no harm, no foul. Um, so in in cases of trauma, I would definitely err on the side of treating of course, yeah. any kind of crying as uh, potentially painful. Yeah, sorry. I was just going to ask uh, your opinion on intranasal fentanyl for uh, pediatric patients. I am a huge fan. In fact, awesome. we changed the Maryland protocols this year. Uh, I'm very proud uh, that I, I went to protocol committee uh, and said uh, across Maryland, let's make fentanyl our primary um, narcotic pain medication. Uh, and morphine was uh, was bumped back to optional status. Um, because Thank we saw God. across Maryland that in jurisdictions that had fentanyl, um, when it was still an optional uh, optional drug, uh, about twice as frequently uh, people were getting a narcotic pain medication in those jurisdictions uh, compared to the ones that had morphine only. I, I remember having to start an IV is a huge barrier to getting pain medicine into a patient, especially a pediatric patient. So the ability to do intranasal fentanyl is a dramatic improvement to giving kids uh, initial initial pain control. 
So you've alluded to uh, two other questions that I've ha I have. Mm -hmm. I have a total of four, unless I think of something else. So uh, first, uh, access. Uh, any mm -hmm. pearls for pediatric access? Uh, and uh, you know, I think of calls where um, it took three of us, right? Uh, so any 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 pearls uh, with that? Uh, getting uh, vascular I am access. the wrong person to ask. Fair uh, enough. I uh, I usually turn it right over to an experienced nurse or uh, or paramedic. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, Kyle. The, you got I wish I could help you out there, but I'm I'm in the same boat of asking that same Fair question. Enough. Fair enough. It, sometimes it's just really difficult. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and so where we can where we can and give medications by other routes, uh, we should. So okay. the most common medications and the most important things I think we can do. Uh, certainly, these are the three most common medications drugs uh, given in in Maryland. Uh, number one is midazolam for seizures can be given intramuscularly. Get the get the drugs in uh, as an injection and don't worry about the uh, IV start. For um, epinephrine in cardiac arrest, uh, put in an IO and push that drug and don't worry about uh, uh, IV start. And for um, narcotic pain medicine, you've got the intranasal route for fentanyl. The um, go, going on to pediatric dosing, any uh, I, I know with like things like Hantevi coming out and stuff like that, any preferred uh, strategies that you uh, prefer for uh, EMS? I don't have a particular strategy that that I would promote. Uh, certainly having some kind of peripheral brain is incredibly important. Uh, I don't carry all those um, drug doses around in my head and I don't rely on mental math mm -hmm. to do my dosing. So in the hospital, we have a big binder in our code room that has a page for every kilogram of weight up to, I think, 20 kilograms. And then it goes in two kilogram increments after that. And we flip open to a page and it tells me the dose of um, midazolam for a patient of this weight and the dose of uh, epinephrine for a patient of that weight and a dose of atropine for a patient of that weight. And it goes through the 20 most frequently used medications in our, in our trauma and critical care base. The high acuity patient who needs emergency drugs is not the time to be fiddling around or trying to do stuff from memory. Yeah. So um, I, uh, I'm familiar with the, with the hand heavy product and, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a commercial, um, device. So I'm not allowed to have any uh, oh, official enough. opinion about Sorry. it, uh, from my, uh, from my position at MIMS. Um, but, uh, several Maryland jurisdictions are, are using it. And I've, I've certainly seen plenty, uh, about, um, how it works, uh, from other sort of national sources and, uh, whether it's that or there are free apps that are available locally that the Children's National Medical Center has an app that uh, is free to download and use um, other oh, kind I of pocket cards, mm -hmm. whatever sort of peripheral brain uh, somebody can can access. Um, that is the way to go. Cool. Do you, Do you have uh, anything that you use, Kyle? Uh, no, I don't. But I, I definitely want to parrot that. I remember as a, especially as a young paramedic always feeling very pressured to know this stuff off the top of my head and uh, being between my own self uh, pressuring myself and um, some of the older paramedics. But it, you know, like she said, it's, it's not the time to, to be yeah. trying to pull this out of your memory. You know, it might feel awkward pulling out a calculator or uh, pulling open the book, but 
it's you know it's the best for the patient Mm-hmm. I I, uh, I feel like I've had a couple mega codes with physicians where they throw like random like SVTing kids and they're like and then they like throw them into arrest and you're like not supposed to pull out your protocol. But no, I, I 110 percent. Uh, so I have a protocol on my phone and uh, uh, when I have had to dose, even if I think I know the dose, I always verify via calculator just to ensure it. Mm-hmm. Um the uh, last question that I have is regarding uh, pediatric, uh, pediatric EKGs. I know that there's a ton of different, uh, and so I'm a, a huge fan of Dr. Matu at university. Uh, I like follow his like weekly podcast and, uh, <laughs> and uh, he's always, and he doesn't talk much about pediatrics. So I just wanted to, and I, I'm not looking for like specifics, but just in general, what are some practices that if, you know, if you're getting an EKG with a pediatric, what are some different things that you do as a physician when you're processing the information from the EKG that you uh, would, that you can disclose to like, the average paramedic who looks at an EKG and it sees something and he's like, Oh, I feel like that's not normal, but Oh, my kid's seven, you know, the patient's seven years old. Yeah. You know, EKGs are not a major part of our practice because kids very rarely have ischemia. Uh, and when they do have, uh, cardiac arrhythmias, um, they tend to fall into a narrow, um, range of possibilities adults with their with their old sick hearts uh, that have various old um, ischemic injuries do all sorts of crazy things and have all kinds of crazy patterns for kids pretty much we are going to look for uh, svt look whether there's a sinus rhythm or not and then uh, for the um, the child with an irregular rhythm try to classify them into broad categories okay. uh, whether it's um, wide complex or narrow complex whether it is a, a bradycardia that is sinus or um, or non-sinus and then we aim with um, with broad strokes uh, with the drugs the uh, kinds of interesting um, high um, highly important decisions to be made that dr matu uh, um, is uh, is focused on in adult cardiology, just don't really exist in in pediatric cardiology. Gotcha. And and the reason I ask that is because uh, one one kid in particular that I had, mm-hmm. um, we you know family would call every couple of weeks, and uh, he there was known that there was something wrong with him, but at the mm-hmm. period of time where I first started having him, they didn't know what it was, and they had never caught it. Apparently, a hospital had never caught it on EKG. And he had a baseline weird rhythm, and uh, I, I mean, I it, it was a sinus rhythm, but I just that's why um, I, I've always wanted to ask a pediatric physician that. So I'm glad I, I'm glad yeah. I got to ask so it. So yeah. two two uh, two take home points that I'll I'll give you is number one, don't stress about it because uh, none of us are that good at pediatric <laughs> reading either. Unless you're a pediatric cardiologist, nobody feels uh, like they are a champ at pediatric EKG reading. And number two is there are um, a lot of conditions that, that kids will have that arrhythmias come and go. And okay. being able to grab a rhythm strip and, and hand that over at the hospital may be the only um, thing that the cardiologist has to go on. Gotcha. And they'll have to arrange to go to the, go to the cath lab and, and do some sort of electrophysiology study. Mm-hmm. And having even that little six-inch strip of, of monitor strip from EMS has sometimes been the, the only bit of clue that we have. So 
it is extraordinarily valuable to try and capture what you can and uh, and uh, and give that over at the hospital. So cool. Good. I'll shut up now. No, you're fine. <laughs> you're fine. Um, Dr. Anders, Kyle, do you, either of you have anything, uh, last words of wisdom you want to leave us with? Anything? The, the last thing that I had wanted to say, uh, and um, possibly, I don't know um, how editing works, Mustafa, <laughs> hopefully you can maybe edit in elsewhere, is the PD tree, the pediatric decision tree that we have created is actually freely available to the public already. Uh, it is um, supported with a web page that people can go to if they want to find out more about it uh, at pdtree.org. And we have a mobile application, so you can download this to your phone. Uh, we have an iPhone version and an Android phone version, and it will work wherever you are across uh, the United States. It is populated so that it will tell you what type of hospital to go to, even if we don't have any hospitals in our database for um, the state that you're in. Um, if you are in uh, Maryland, one of our surrounding states, uh, or Austin, Texas, um, we have populated it already and we're looking to add more states um, to that list over the next couple of months. And so you can go to the, the app store that works for your phone and uh, just search for PDTree, all one word, uh, and uh, and it should pop up there, cute little icon with a little with a tree. And we can link it on our uh, page when we oh, publish super. it. Yeah, that yeah, would we'll, be great. We'll link it. Yeah, yep. I'll, I'll just have to put that down as a reminder. Yeah. Okay. All right, Kyle, you have uh, anything you want to leave us with? No, thank you so much for having us on. Thank you both yeah, so, much you so much for for coming on. Uh, this was an absolutely awesome interview. Uh, I think it was as you guys are were great. Um, so thank you everybody for listening to the alert medic one podcast. Don't forget to check out our website, www.alertmedic1.com. We have lots of content on there, lots of articles. We try to push out new content as quickly as we can for you. Check us out on Twitter, alert underscore medic one at alert underscore medic one, Facebook alert medic one. Please leave us a uh, rating, subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice, leave us, a, leave us a review, and we'll see you all next week. Have a good night. You've been listening to the Alert Medic One podcast, the premier emergency medical services podcast with your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq and Ken Sanner. 